0: Excellent. Now, if uh, the next slide, there we go. <laughs> We're off to a good start. Who, who can tell me who this uh, gentleman is? <laughs> Godzilla? All right, that is correct. Uh, for those of you who don't know Godzilla, He is a uh, radioactive lizard from Japan who uh, is often destroying uh, the cities of Japan. That's his pastime. Uh, (laughs) And for those of you who don't know, uh, Godzilla is my absolute favorite movie franchise. Uh, That may surprise you, may not, uh, but that is my favorite franchise. And what's interesting about the Godzilla franchise is it is actually the longest running movie franchise of all time. It started in the year 1954, and the most recent movie came out this year, and another movie is coming out later this year. And uh, in addition to being the longest running movie series, it's also the movie series with the most movies in it, a total of 34, so the closest one uh, is James Bond, which has about 24, 25 movies. So this has spanned uh, a long, long amount of time. And as a fan of Godzilla, and as a person who's seen all of the movies, uh, I can tell you that there are some very excellent movies in this series. Um, My absolute favorite is the original 1954 black and white Godzilla. And uh, it's actually recognized as a legitimately good piece of cinema, even by people who aren't fans of the genre. Uh, Godzilla is this nuclear monster represents uh, an allegory for the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki that happened in World War II, and just the imprint that left on the consciousness of the Japanese people. 1984, uh, we have Godzilla Returns, which Uh, sort of is another allegory kind of situation of how Japan is situated in the world between the Soviet Union and the United States during the Cold War. So it picks up kind of uh, important themes, uh, somewhat deep content. Uh, At the same time, the Godzilla series has some of the worst movies you will ever see. (laughs) A movie called Godzilla's Revenge, which came out in the late 60s, has very little to do with Godzilla and very little to do with his revenge. Uh, It is (laughs) a movie about a small boy who is bullied uh, who then hallucinates that he fights his bully as a giant monster with Godzilla's son, and the movie ends triumphantly where he punches his bully in the face. Not a great piece of cinema. (laughs) But Given uh, this movie series, how you have these really excellent films and then you have these really awful films, how should we evaluate the series as a whole? How should I, as a fan of the series, uh, talk about it to people who haven't seen it? Should I recommend it to people? Should I say, yeah, there's some good ones uh, that are worth seeing uh, and you should just ignore the bad ones? Or should I just admit, yeah, you know, 95% of them are horrible. It's not really worth seeing. Uh, how, how are we to evaluate something like that? And in a roundabout way, uh, this actually gets to the point of our message today. Uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians 5 19 through 22. And this passage has to do with the prophetic activity of the Spirit within the congregation. And so posing that question now, as we've posed of the Godzilla series, to prophecy uh, and the spirit's activity, is it something that is good, that has good aspects that we should celebrate? Uh, Or is it something that can be misused to such a point that we should just reject it outright? How are we supposed to evaluate the spirit's activity? And so what I would say is, Uh, We are not to reject the Spirit's activity of prophecy, but instead we are going to learn how to discern the good from the bad. So I'll give you guys a chance to flip to that scripture or just stare at the screen. And I am just going to pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for today. Thank you for uh, just the blessings of your Son and the blessings of your Spirit, God that you would seek to communicate with man, Uh, Lord, that you would seek to be in fellowship with us despite our failings. And Lord, I just pray that your spirit would be with us, that you would help us to understand uh, what you would say through your word, Lord, and help the church to be built up through it. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. So reading this passage, Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. Now, before we can dive fully into this passage, I think it's important to uh, just survey the terrain and maybe explain a few things. So, this message is going to be about prophecy, but I think it's important to figure out what are, what are we talking about? What is this passage talking about when we think of prophecy? And so the first thing uh, we have to do is we can't think of prophecy in the way that culture does. So if I tell someone I'm a prophet or someone says they're prophesying, you know, in a TV show or something, we get this image of some type of old wizardly figure Looking into the future and surveying what's going on and communicating in cryptic terms, this is what's going to happen. That's kind of the idea that we get from popular culture what prophecy is. Um, Not exactly what we're talking about here today. When we look in scripture, uh, which is where we are to find uh, a better definition of prophecy. there are several forms we could talk about. And the first that we would talk about is the Old Testament and what the Old Testament refers to as prophecy. So in culture, we tend to think of uh, telling the future, that's what prophecy is. And for the Old Testament, that is certainly something that's included in its view of prophecy. You have things like Isaiah 53, where Isaiah predicts the future crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Um, you have all these different future events. Book of Revelation has some aspect of that. Um, but for the Old Testament, and Revelation's not in the Old Testament, so ignore that. Um, <laughs> I have credibility, don't worry. <laughs> um, it includes that foretelling, but it also has an element of forthtelling proclaiming, the words of God, the instructions of God, that may or may not have some future connotation to them. So a good example of this is Moses. Moses, we think of, uh, you know, we think of the Exodus story, you know, parting the Red Sea, giving the instructions of God to his people. Um, and is, what is interesting is that he is described as a prophet. And if you think about Moses, and you think about the story of the Exodus and the uh, wanderings, he doesn't actually predict very many future things. He's not looking into the future and telling the people of God what's going to happen, at least not regularly. But what he is doing, uh, to the greatest extent, is he is communicating the words of God, the instructions of God, the law of God to his people. And so for the Old Testament you have this element of foretelling, but you also have this element of just giving the instructions of God. And these instructions of God uh, have an authority to them that is absolutely binding on the people who hear them. Um, If Moses told the people of Israel, you know, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, uh, these aren't just suggestions. These aren't just, you know, we can we can work something out with this. You know, this is a little bit negotiable. No, these are the words of God to his people. And because of that, they have an absolutely binding authority to them. It is God speaking through his prophet. And that is in a a brief summation what the Old Testament views prophecy to be. And for us today, Uh, If we want to experience or see an example of that Old Testament prophecy, we look in the Old Testament because those words of God, the communication of God in an authoritative manner to his people at that time is what became the Old Testament. The Old Testament has that binding quality upon us. Uh, Things have to be interpreted, but it is the absolute authoritative word of God. So that's Old Testament prophecy. Now we get into the New Testament. And in the time of the New Testament, things start to change. And it's not a change in what prophecy looks like necessarily. Uh, It's more a change in terminology. So in the New Testament, we don't find a lot of references to someone speaking Uh, prophecy from God, thus saith the Lord, do this, don't do this, this is going to happen. The way that the New Testament refers to that kind of activity is apostolic teaching or the apostles. So when we think of that, we think of Paul, Peter, John. Uh, Those people are the New Testament equivalents of Old Testament prophets. And so... Their words had this kind of binding, authoritative nature to them. Uh, Paul, in this very letter, is speaking that level of authoritative communication from God, uh, that we have to obey, that we is not negotiable, is not testable, is not something that you can uh, attempt to reason away from things of that nature. It is binding like a parent speaking to their child, you you need to calm down, you need to sit in your seat. That's not a negotiable. (laughs) Well, maybe it is, I don't know how you guys parent, but (laughs) suffice it to say, it should be an authoritative command or an authoritative communication to the child. Now, having talked about this cultural view of prophecy Old Testament view of prophecy, and this New Testament view of prophecy or apostolic teaching. None of these things are what this passage is talking about. Um, This passage is talking about another form of prophetic activity, another form of prophecy that is a bit different from uh, what's spoken of as prophecy in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I think the easiest way to explain it um, is it is similar to the other forms of prophecy in that it is a communication of God to a person. But unlike, say, the New Testament or the Old Testament, this kind of communication is not binding. It's not authoritative in the same manner. Uh, it is something that can be wrong it is something that can be a little off and at the very worst it's something that can be abused but uh, this form of prophecy this form of prophetic activity which we're seeing here in this passage uh, is what takes place in the congregation it's what took place earlier today uh, when John and Toby came up it's this impression from the Lord this is what the Lord would want me to speak to his people And it's this impression um, which, you know, no one's going to come up here and say, thus saith the Lord, everybody has to tithe 20%. Uh, That would be an abuse. Um, But it is a communication uh, to the individual from the Lord in a somewhat spontaneous sense that is meant to encourage, build up, and edify God's people, and it's usually at this time connected with the word of God, uh, word of God being the scriptures. Um, it takes its cues from that. And so uh, it is a different form of prophetic activity. Uh, again, it is not binding in the same manner uh, that the Old Testament or the New Testament is to our lives. But it is still a communication from God, from his spirit to a human being and if you're sitting there and you're thinking that sounds a little weird that sounds a little funky uh, you know maybe you're getting the image of uh, you know those people who speak to the dead on TV where they'll just kind of be like you know I'm getting an A and a Does anyone have an A in their name oh good most people have A's in their names uh, <laughs> It's not some type of uh, mental trick. Uh, it's also not just, you know, something, I observe something, and so I'm going to talk about it. So I observed Mattia chewing gum earlier, and so now I'm going to say to the congregation she needs to spit it out. <laughs> that was not prophecy. That was just mean. Uh <laughs> Uh, it, is, it truly is a supernatural communication of God to a person. And as strange as that sounds, it is something that God does, and it's something that he did uh, in the early church, and it's something that he does today. And so that is what New Testament, let's call it congregational prophecy, is. Um, and that is what Paul is talking about in this passage. And so now having gone through that background, we can now look into the passage itself. And so starting verses 19 through 20, uh, Paul gives two very direct commands. Do not quench the spirit and do not despise prophecy. Now, evidently, and we uh, can't know for sure, there's just not enough context, Something within the church was causing people to strongly dislike this kind of prophetic activity that I've described. Something had gone on that had caused people to be suspicious, uh, cynical, and just in a a state of rejection of this kind of activity. And so Paul uses very strong language um, to describe what he wants them to do, and what he wants them to do is to not have that attitude, to not have that kind of response. So he starts off in a very general, don't quench the spirit. Uh, the spirit is, of God is the one who gives us these gifts like prophecy. And so Paul is saying, don't quench him. Just like a fire, you know, it has a lot of activity, it has a lot of heat, it has a lot of energy, Uh, If you want to get rid of that, you want to extinguish it, you quench it with water, you quench it uh, with some type of uh, flame retardant. And so this is what Paul is telling them not to do. Don't do that. Don't extinguish the Spirit. The Spirit is doing something, and it is not for us to stop that. And this is, at this time, just very general, you know, don't quench the spirit. Okay, Paul, I'm following you. He then moves on to a more specific command. Do not despise prophecy. This is what Paul is really getting at. This is the particular activity of the spirit that Paul does not want the Thessalonians to reject. And so he uses that strong language of despising and you know, that word as it was used in the New Testament, uh, you know, it has a very negative connotation. Uh, when the Gospels describe Herod's soldiers as mocking and uh, despising Jesus, that's the word it uses. It uses this strong uh, notion of just treating with absolute disdain, um, as worthless as nothing, uh, just a very strong and negative response to something, you know, in thinking through examples of something like that, uh, the best I could come up with was those old tabloid magazines that they'd sell right at the front counter, but they weren't about celebrities or anything. They were about like Bigfoot sightings and UFOs and stuff like that. Uh, Just really weird nonsense material. And I have a response of despising and rejecting disdainfully that kind of thing because it's absolute nonsense. It has no value. It has absolutely nothing positive to offer. It's just trash. And it's that kind of response that some Thessalonians were having to the prophetic activity of the Spirit. And so one now has to ask the question, why would someone despise the prophetic activity of the Spirit to such a degree? Uh, What would cause someone to just hate it that much? And for this situation with the Thessalonians, we can't entirely know, but we do get some hints as to what could go on. Um, We see in 2 Thessalonians, uh, and this is, of course, taking place afterwards, um, the Thessalonians are panicking And they're panicking because they think that Jesus has already come back and they have somehow been left out of his return. And so we see in 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2, Paul says to them, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, Or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So these references to a spirit or a spoken word, uh, these are references to some type of prophetic activity. Someone had evidently said to the Thessalonians that, hey, you know, God told me or an angel told me something of that nature that Jesus has already come back and we missed the train, there's no hope for us, we're done for, that's it. And so, seeing this example from Scripture, it can be uh, something we can really imagine why someone would hate this kind of activity if someone could actually come up and tell the Thessalonians, oh yeah, Jesus has come back, there's no hope for you, people would believe that. You know Why would anyone want the opportunity for that to happen? Why are we allowing something to go on that could be misused this badly? And along with this biblical example, I think that there are many examples even today of how this prophetic activity, this congregational prophecy, can be misused in such a way that people would despise it. If you were to turn on Christian television right now, there is a good chance that you could encounter a man or a woman looking at the camera and telling you, I'm feeling like God is saying this to me. If this person who has this medical condition is to donate this amount of money to me right now, they are instantly going to be healed of that medical condition. Or maybe... They'll say something like this: You know, God has told me uh, what's going to happen in America's future, and because of that, I'm telling you right now, you have to vote for candidate A and candidate C. That's what God is telling me. And judging by your faces, none of you think those things are are good things to do. Um, these are things that are abuses. In the first example, a person is using this prophetic activity to cheat people out of money, to take their money and take advantage of sick people. In the second example, uh, this person is using this prophetic activity in such a way to elevate their importance, to force people to uh, vote a certain way, to think a certain way, to have some type of unhealthy authority over their lives. And I don't know about you, but when I see stuff like that, I have a really hard time not wanting to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, if there is even a slim chance that someone could come up and do something like that and people would believe it, why on earth would we allow it to happen? Why are we leaving that door open when, you know, a thief can just run right in? And while Paul doesn't say it explicitly here in this passage, even though the gift of prophecy can be misused, it is still a gift from God. It is still something that God wants to bless his people with. And because of that, it's not something we can reject. Just because something can be misused doesn't mean that we now need to disuse it that we need to stop doing it. What it calls for, rather, is a a nuanced response. It calls for um, us to think through. It calls for us to, as we're going to find out, test to see whether something is good or bad. Uh, But again, I just want to say prophecy is a good thing, and despite its ability to be misused, it's a way that God wants to communicate to his people, And it's a way that God wants to bless his people. You know, I think of another example of uh, something that people can despise or reject because it can be misused um, is just technology in a very general sense. You know, you can look at uh, technology in the past hundred years, and there are a lot of great things. Um, We have cars that let us go to places quickly Uh, We have all sorts of modern medicine, Uh, you know, we have phones, we have all these things. Uh, There's a lot good going on with technology. At the same time, there is a lot bad that goes on with technology. Even the things that I mentioned that we appreciate can be misused. Uh, People lament now how hard it is to form relationships when everyone's on their phone, that people have socially moved into a virtual world and in doing so pulled back from the real world. Um, Even thinking of cars, uh, it's a lot harder to know all your neighbors and have a tight community with them when you drive 40 minutes to work, you drive 20 minutes to church, and you drive an hour to see your family. We're just so spread out because of uh, technology like a car that it's just hard to keep that kind of community. And so there are some who would say, you know what, all this modern technology, it's just, it's not worth uh, the effort, it's not worth the energy. Um, and those people are what you'd call a Luddite, um, which used to be an English, sorry, Toby, uh, <laughs> group of textile workers who, uh, because they were afraid that machines were going to take their jobs, would just go around textile factories and destroy machinery. And so today, we use that term Luddite to refer to an individual that hates technology. And I must say, there is a certain truth to uh, those individuals, those Luddites, who dislike technology. Um, As I said, it, it is harder to form communities. Um, with certain types of technology. Um, it can just be a nuisance and a distraction uh, when people are on their phone or uh, you know, just different watching TV, different things like that. Um, it can become problematic. And then on the far end, perhaps a little more serious, uh, you know, as much as modern medicine advances, uh, you also have the potential for things like biological warfare. You know, Nuclear weapons exist, these things are bad. And so we can see some people might despise technology because it can be misused. But in the same uh, vein uh, that we're talking about prophecy, technology is a good thing. Uh, It in itself is a gift from God. He's allowed us to use our mental powers. He's allowed us to use uh, those things which uh, God has given us to improve our lives, to improve the world around us. And as such, it's not something that we can just get rid of. That's not the best reaction to have. And so bringing it back to prophecy, bringing it back to uh, scripture, uh, what I'd like to say to us today is, you know, let us not reject prophetic activity. Let us not despise the Spirit's activity through prophecy just because it can be misused. It is still a gift from God. It is still something that God wants to do And perhaps you have uh, even been abused by it. Perhaps someone has used that kind of, excuse me, that kind of gifting or that kind of activity to manipulate you or to manipulate someone that you know or love. Uh, And perhaps you just want to say, I'm done with this. I just, I can't deal with it. Uh, It's just too dangerous. It's too dangerous to keep around. I again would caution you because uh, this is a ministry that God uses, as much as it can be abused, it is meant to be used for our good. And as such, it's not something we can reject out of hand. Um, Perhaps today you felt blessed by the encouragement uh, given by John, perhaps you felt encouraged or know someone encouraged by other prophetic words given by Pastor Paul or others. I would hold on to those good experiences and remember this is what it's supposed to look like. This is what is supposed to happen. People are to be encouraged. And I wouldn't want to take away that encouragement that God can give purely because other people have used it in a negative way. But maybe you're asking uh, a different question. Maybe you're on the same page you think, yeah, it can be a good thing. But what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to sort the good from the bad? How am I supposed to evaluate this uh, in such a way that we don't have crazy people coming up here and, and saying horrible things? And so this is where Paul's next command comes in. Verses 21 through 22, we are to test everything. We aren't just to blindly reject prophetic activity, nor are we to blindly accept it, but we are to test it and evaluate it. And so thinking through, you know, testing and evaluating it, uh, again, this form of prophecy is fallible. People can get things wrong. Uh, People can say the wrong thing, say, uh, you know, Thus says God when Jonah put people on the boat uh, and the flood happened. You know, just something kind of often ridiculous like that. Uh, these are things that can happen or, as we've discussed, more serious abuses. Um, Paul acknowledges that. Paul knows that. And so he calls for people to test the activity. And so thinking through examples, uh, Everybody knows 2 plus 2 equals 4. That is an established fact. No one needs to, you know, try to solve that problem. It's, it's pretty evident that that is the case. Um, but just because that is true doesn't mean if someone is doing a math problem, I wouldn't check their work. I'm checking their work by what we know is established as true and then going through it to see does this line up. And so in the same way Paul is calling the Thessalonians to test the prophetic word, and though he doesn't say it explicitly here, um, I imagine what he means implicitly is they are to test it against the absolute authoritative word of God that we have in Scripture. We see uh, another example of Paul saying this in 1 Corinthians 14.29, where he says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. Uh, Paul never is telling uh, the believers to accept or reject all prophecy just like that. He's calling them to evaluate and to test, and he's calling them to evaluate and to test by the authoritative word of God. And in doing so, he moves from this very general notion of testing to the more specific notion of holding on to what's good and rejecting what is evil. Uh, For the Thessalonians, his instruction to them is if something is good, if something is uh, holy, if something is encouraging, if something lines up with scripture, you keep that, you celebrate that, you accept that. But if something goes against scripture, if something is damaging, if something is manipulative, if something... uh, is just wrong, you reject it. It's a nuanced response to a gift of the spirit that can be abused, that is fallible, but nonetheless is good. And I think in our culture today, this can be a, a difficult thing to think through. Uh, as much as our society is, is very open-minded, is very much uh, in a state where, you know, We allow and we celebrate all sorts of things. Um, We are also a culture that is very black and white. Uh, It is very hard for us to uh, see an individual, see a a person or uh, a writing, anything like that. And if there's one really bad thing in it, we just reject it out of hand. Um, As if that one bad thing has tainted everything else to such a degree that we just can't, we can't use any, anything else. And so an example that I think of and, and one that is more perhaps germane to the church is Martin Luther. Martin Luther was the 16th century reformer who uh, basically set off the Protestant Reformation. Uh, he did a lot of good things, a lot of great things. He helped people to move from uh, listening to purely the authority of the Catholic Church to reading the Bible, to sifting the scriptures themselves. Um, In a time where people thought that they could pay money to get their family out of purgatory, he was very instrumental in putting a stop to that in Germany and other countries. Um, Just on a personal note, his uh, writings on grace and forgiveness have been so impactful on my life Um, probably one of the most impactful writers I've ever read. Um, These are very good things. These are excellent things that he has done. At the same time, Martin Luther also did some pretty awful things. And in 1543, he wrote a book called The Jews and Their Lies. And I've read bits of it, and it is one of the most anti-Semitic things you'll ever read. Um, you know, you listen to a speech by Adolf Hitler, it is tame compared to some of the things that Martin Luther says. Just a very mild quote from this text. This is uh, advice that Martin Luther is giving to the princes of Germany as to how they're to treat their Jewish subjects. I advise that their houses be razed and destroyed, for they pursue in them the same aims as in their synagogues, Instead, they should be lodged under one roof or in a barn like the gypsies. This will bring home to them that they are not masters in our country, as they boast, but they are living in exile and in captivity as they incessantly wail and lament about us before God. And I would read more, but it's not appropriate. Um, And I have to say, this isn't just a, a misunderstanding Luther had. This isn't just a weak moment you know, he's griping to a friend or, or something like that. Uh, this was a sustained piece of writing he published that was just awful, that he dehumanized people to such a degree um, that it, it, it's just, it's, it's evil. There, there's no other way to say it. And so now thinking about Martin Luther, thinking about him in uh, Christianity today, what should we do as Christians, should we just see all the good things that he did and say, you know what, Martin Luther's okay? Uh, All this anti-Semitic stuff, we're just going to kind of take over here, and we're going to bury it, and we're not going to talk about it. Um, Or we're just going to make excuses for it and uh, say, oh, you you know, he was just crazy towards the end of his life and ignore it. That's one response. Another response is we could just say, wow, that book is so bad that we, we just can't read Martin Luther anymore. Uh, we need to take everything he's written, everything he said, and we just need to throw it in the trash heap. There's nothing good that can come out of a person that could say something like that. That's the other response. But in a similar manner to what Paul says about prophecy, uh, this, these two absolute acceptance and absolute rejection are not the responses that we're to have. Um, I can say for Martin Luther, I love and celebrate the good things that he did. I love uh, his teaching on justification. I love his teaching against indulgences. But I can say absolutely and with no equivocation, what he wrote about the Jews in that book is evil and wrong and not excusable in any manner, uh, in any shape whatsoever. And you see, this is a nuanced view. This isn't just absolute acceptance and it's not absolute rejection. It's an acceptance of the good things and a rejection of the bad things. And this is what Paul is calling us to do with congregational prophecy. If someone comes up and says, you know, I believe that the Lord is speaking to me and he wants to encourage someone whose family member has died, we should accept that, we should love that, we should hope and pray that whoever that's for is encouraged. But if in the next sentence they say, by the way, uh, that same person, uh, your family member died because, you know, they were so sinful and evil, We can absolutely say, okay, what you just said is evil, and we reject that. We can hold on to the good thing and reject the evil thing. We don't have to fall into uh, this idea of all good or all bad. We can accept the good and reject the bad, and we do that through uh, sifting prophetic activity through the scriptures. And so as the band comes up, or if they could come up, I just want to close with uh, just a recap of what Paul has said here. Congregational prophecy is a gift from the Lord, and as such, it is not something that we are to despise or reject. Um, In spite of its misuse, we cannot respond with absolute disuse. Um, It is a gift and it's something that God wants to do for us and through us. And so if you believe you have that gift of prophecy, I want to encourage you today, uh, use it. Use it for the good of the church. Use it uh, so that God may use you to encourage people. And perhaps if you are an individual who responds to that kind of activity with cynicism or skepticism, I would offer to you Paul's further instruction that rather than just rejecting it outright, discern what's good and discern what's bad. Uh, Look at what is said in prophecy and see if it lines up with scripture. See if it lines up with the word of God. And if it does, accept it. And if it doesn't, reject it. And in this way, my friends, God's intention for congregational prophecy, that the church would be built up and his people would be encouraged, can take place.